Some of you have seen this uh, on your TV screen because you watched Ty Pennington with his bullhorn stand in front of homes that were less than desirable. Um, it was a popular ABC TV show, and they would go around from city to city. In fact, you know, as he would stand there and he would take his bullhorn with his design team that was all around him, and he would shout, Hey, the fails, come on out. Well, they never shouted that at our house. But they did, sh- they did shout that at a house in Raleigh. There was a house in East Raleigh that they came and they renovated uh, as part of their show. And so, um, you know, they would take something that, as I said, was less than desirable to live in, uh, sometimes even a shack that would be torn down and rebuilt into something that was magnificent. So I want to flip the switch today a little bit. Uh, So instead of Extreme Makeover Home Edition, it's going to be Extreme Makeover Mind Edition. And we're going to look at the first two verses of chapter 12 of Romans. Now, this particular is not um, making something that is uh, physical new in the form of a house, but the mind edition is taking something less than desirable that God wants and turning it into something that is magnificent, that he is pleased with. We have done 11 chapters of Romans um, over the last year plus. And so during that time, Paul has given his theological basis, his theological stance of what God has done through Jesus Christ. He began in the first chapter, and I'm not going to recant all 11, so don't, don't get too worried about it. But in the first chapter... He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed. He told us that there is no excuse for any of us because God is a God that is the creator God. We can see God's beauty everywhere. And he went on to set that theological premise that all of us have sinned. You can't say that you have not sinned because you, as John says in his first letter, you will call God a liar if you say you're without sin. And I don't think that's something any of us want to do. So Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but he doesn't leave it there. God provided a way, Jesus Christ. For all who confess and repent and believe that God raised him from the dead, that being Jesus, will be saved, Paul told us. And he sets this premise, and then we come to chapter 8, and he reminds us we are his. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus and make it personal, my Lord. There's nothing that can separate us from the love that's in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing. 
we parked there for a little bit as we were going through chapter 8. But now in these final chapters, 12 through 16, Paul kind of flips the script a little bit. So we have the theological premise in the first 11 chapters, and now he's going to do the application. How to take what he has taught, how as you as a believer have come to this understanding that you belong to Christ, he has done the work for us, taken our sins to the cross, nailed with him, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And now Paul begins to turn that into application. Today, I'm going to do just two verses. We're not going to spend a a lot of Sundays in chapter uh, 12, but we're going to spend three there. And next week, verses 8 through, uh, excuse me, 3 through 8 will be the next section. And it goes with these two verses, but I didn't want to keep you here till 3 o'clock this afternoon. And so I decided to just do two verses today, and then I'll do the other verses leading up to that third section that we'll cover uh, later in July. So if you have your Bibles, two verses. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, that this morning you would illuminate through the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts, that we would hear your word, and Father, we would be changed by it. We pray this in your name, amen. Pastor John MacArthur tells a story of when he was uh, doing a seminar, a conference, and he said after the conference, this lady came up to him in tears, and she said, Pastor John, I'm a Christian, but it, it just seems so empty. It seems like everything I do just doesn't go anywhere. It seems like I'm not satisfied. I read, I pray, I go to church. In fact, she said, I, I go to church every Sunday. He said, well, well, tell me what you're doing. She said, well, I worship God. She said, in fact, I went to a church that speaks in tongues, and, and I spoke, spoke in tongues, and I was slain in the Spirit. And she said, they told me that um, a miracle happened to me. I, I don't know, but they said it did. She said, I read the Bible. I go to Bible studies She said, I read all these self-help books. She said, but it just, nothing seems to work. Despite all of that, I feel like God is not pleased with me. And here's how she ended that sentence. I've tried to get everything from him that I can 
but I'm not satisfied. I'm still miserable. More. So MacArthur responded to that and said, Honey, you just put your finger on the problem. So listen to what he said. And I believe he's right. John said, The key to spiritual victory and true happiness is not in trying to get all we can from God, but in giving all that we are and have to God. There's a difference. I think he's right. Do we receive from God? Absolutely. In Jesus Christ. God calls us to respond to his redemption and his saving power that he has given us. Countless people every week go to seminars. Countless people read all the books that's been written out there about how I can do this or how I can be more spiritual or how I can understand what God has done. And there's nothing wrong with reading books. There's nothing wrong with Good authors sharing with you about what they have to give and offer when when it comes to understanding about Jesus, about what God has done. These personal, emotional, spiritual things that we try to fill our life with. But Paul, in this chapter, and as he begins this these first two verses. He gives us this exhortation. And this exhortation you may not consider forceful, but if you read it as something that is forceful, as Paul says, I urge you. And if you were to look at the Greek word urge, you would understand that it's a a mandate. It is, I urge you, I command you, I employ you to do this, what I'm about to tell you. And so, the apostle is not only and has not only told us what God has done through Jesus, this eternal life of believing in him, but now he begins to tell us what we are to do with that faith, how we're to live out that faith as a believer in Jesus Christ. The key to productive and satisfying a Christian life to God is not getting more from God. He's given his all. But us giving our all in response to what he has done. In John 4.23 Jesus says this, True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God himself gave himself for us that we might not only come to an understanding, be reconciled, Know that he has given us salvation in him, eternal life in him. But he wants us in turn to glorify him and to worship him in all that we are, 
in all that we have. Philippians 3.3, Paul defines Christians as who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, all that we are, all of our very being, we worship God. Unfortunately, today, many who say that they are followers of Jesus Christ, and some, I would say, that are followers of Jesus Christ, admire Jesus from a distance. Oh, they, they show up on Sunday morning. Um, they give a little time during the week. They... They don't put on the person, the mind, the heart of Jesus. We're called to worship Him. We are called more than to be an audience on Sunday morning. Say, well, you're going to meddle here a little bit. I'll just let whatever fall, fall where it may. Because I'm not just preaching to you. The word preaches to me. And so, worshipers we are called to be, and not just an audience on Sunday morning, not just saying, I'm going to give you this amount of time, God, but this is all the time that I've got. Everything else is filled up. I've made my list this week. I've looked at my calendar, I've looked at my to-do list, and I've got this time, God, for you. But we're called to be servants. We're called to sacrifice. We're called to be followers of Jesus Christ. And a disciple, first and foremost, it means that there has to be radical change in our life. When Jesus invited Simon and Andrew to come and follow him, do you remember what he said? He said, repent and believe the good news. All of you know what the word repent in the Greek means. It means to turn around, go in a different direction. And so as we look at this particular passage, as these two verses, and especially as we come into, I urge you, he says, brethren, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He is talking about change. He is talking about how when we go in the opposite direction, when we focus on Christ instead of this world, there has to be a change in our life. Dallas Willard, in his book, Renovation of the Heart, writes, genuine conversion can be a heart-wrenching experience. It can cause deep and permanent damage to the most intimate relationships that we may have. And Jesus forewarns us of that in his scripture. This change is equivalent to a sold earthquake that leaves us shaken. You say, well, you know, I don't know a time in my life when I didn't know Jesus. I, I was raised in the church, and I came to faith in, in Jesus Christ 
as, as I worshipped with my family or as a teenager, and I didn't have that earth-shaking experience. Everybody listen to me, please. You didn't have to have the earth-shaking experience. But there had to be a change. Because you can't continue to be what you were once Christ is your Lord. Did you hear me, church? You can't continue to be what you were when Christ is your Lord. And Paul is trying to help us to understand this. And he begins, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This urging is, as, is to be obeyed and is to be by the family of God. Paul is talking to the believer. He is talking to us who belong to the family of God. No other offering is acceptable unless we first offer him all our soul. For the Christian, the first element of this holy and living sacrifice is that we first offer him ourself. We confess and repent and he enters us. The unregenerated person cannot give their body, their soul, their mind, even their will to serve God because they do not belong to him. They have not surrendered. They have no saving relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, capital S, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Only the redeemed can present their bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord because there is a relationship there. There is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is in us. And the desire is to be more and more like Christ. The indwelling spirit is going to call you not only in relationship to him, not only going to comfort you and lead you and guide you, but the Holy Spirit will help us as we lean into, as we yield to him. This physical body, this physical body is what houses our soul. This physical body is going to fail. This physical body is going to, unless Christ comes back and you know where I stand on um, um, the rapture and everything, unless Christ calls the church to be with him, I am going to die. And this body is going to fail and um, it's going to perish. But not my spirit, not my soul. God has created us, has created us to be a part of him, to be in relationship with him. Paul in six, Romans 6.12, he reminds us, he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. 
But he doesn't stop there. In verse 13, he says, Under God's control, our redeemed bodies. Do not, he says, present the members of your bodies as sin instruments of unrighteousness to present yourself to God to those alive from the dead. That's an interesting phrase. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of the righteousness of God. And so in this verse, we are reminded that our bodies yearn for this unrighteousness, but Paul calls us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, our members that have been uh, alive now from the dead, brought back to life through Jesus and what he has done. What is the great mystery that will happen, as Paul in Corinthians 15 reminds us, is one day these mortal bodies will be changed and put on immortality, imperishability. We will receive glorified bodies that won't hurt, won't fail, won't have disease. We won't have to worry about crying or pain or any of that because we will be with Christ. I can't wait till that happens. But until then, he has called us to glorify and to worship him. Paul states this living and holy sacrifice is our act of our spiritual service of worship to God. The Extreme Makeover Mind Edition is that we present ourselves to God for worship. Our body, Paul says, is a temple, a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells with us. The very Spirit of the living God is in us, and we have to ask ourselves, are we a holy and living sacrifice? To the Lord? What do others see? What do others hear? Our actions, our speech, who we associate with, all of those will give us an indication of whether we're living that holy and living sacrifice of worship to God. And unfortunately, often what the world sees and the reason that they call us hypocrites is they do not see us living out that holy and living sacrifice of worship every day. They don't see it throughout the week, throughout our life. tell you who does see, and that's God. God sees every second of every day. He knows every thought that I think. He knows all that I do. He knows the mind that I have, and he knows the intention that I have. And so when someone looks at me and says, well, why did you do that, or why did you intend that or you intended that to be that way, God really knows. God really knows what I intend to say or think or how my actions are going to 
impact others. And we have to be conscious of that. And that is why Paul moves to that next verse from verse 1 where we are urged to be a living sacrifice with our very bodies. We, this outward body that people, that they can see this. They can see what we're doing. They can see if we're abusing it. He says, this needs to be acceptable to God. This needs to be our service of worship. And then he goes to that next verse and he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. These two words are very interesting. If you look at the Greek in the word conformed, it is an outward change without an inward change. And that's why Paul specifically uses that here. In fact, a, a good translation of this in the English from the Greek would be fashioned. So if you were to look at this verse and put it in that light, Paul is saying, do not allow yourself to adopt the fashion of this world, to be forced into this world's mold. You know what you do when you use a mold, right? You, you take something and you form it and you push it down into the mold. And that mold has some type of shape or some type of uh, form where when you pour it in and you force it and you push it and it becomes a part of that and you take it out of the mold, it looks just like the mold. And that's what he is saying. Don't be forced. Uh, fashioned in the form of the world. So this second word, transformed, we know in the Greek means metamorphosis. It means that, that inward change. So there's an inward change that happens. And what happens when we are transformed by God, when the inside changes, there absolutely has to be a visual outside change. So if I am transformed into the likeness of Christ, Ron should be able to look at me and say, Marty, something's changed about you. You're not saying, doing, acting the same way you did before you were transformed. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, hallelujah, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed into the likeness, into the likeness, of Christ, our Lord. And yet, many Christians, for whatever reason, seem not to be able to live into that transformation in a way that others can see. William Obell, I wanted to read a quote from from him to you. He says, and I quote, I fear that 
not many weekly churchgoers are equipped to integrate what we hear and affirm in church with the concrete choice to face it in every day at our home, school, work, the marketplace. The result of that is functional atheism. Much of the time, we operate as if God were not an active factor, let alone a decisive factor. Our decision-making, or in our decision-making, yes, we engage in practices of going to church, praying, reading the Bible, giving our money, giving our time, even maybe giving some mercy to someone that needs it, but we also act without considering God as a force to be reckoned with. We weigh our purchases asking, can I afford it, instead of, am I a faithful steward? We customarily explain our experiences in psychological categories. He has a big ego, she's depressed, or economic categories, supply and demand, or political categories, as far as human rights. But for some reason, the churchgoer, even the Christian, somehow looks at the world in something other than through Jesus' eyes, where Jesus sees the world as sin in need of grace, idolatry that needs repentance, conflict that needs peace. God has created us. He understands us and our lives, end quote. We are called to live and to be more like Jesus every day, not just on Sunday, but every aspect of our life. And prayer and worship and reading the Bible and coming together and studying and tithing and service and helping others and participating in faith activities with others are absolutely great and they need to be a part of our life, but it can't stop there. We're called to be more and more like Jesus with our hearts and our minds. Following Jesus is about a personal relationship with him and letting him teach us, lead us, and help us in this life in a lost world. Anytime that we take control of that, I'll rephrase that. Anytime I take control of that, I mess it up. But when I allow Jesus to guide my thoughts, my actions, and my decisions, I become more and more like Christ, and I become more and more acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul's general confirmation but firm command here is for us to not allow our lives to be conformed to the ways of this world, to not masquerade around and say, yes, I'm a Christian, but actually not live that way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into that mold 
of itself. We must pattern our lives, ourselves, around God, around our Savior, Jesus, and not around the prince of this world, who for this time in this age, until God comes back and sends Jesus to set this world right side up, until then, we have to stop allowing ourselves to be fashioned by this world. The Holy Spirit achieves this transformation by the renewing of our mind, Paul says. So when we surrender and we have our mind renewed, he says in essence, and it's repeated over and over and over in the New Testament, this outward transformation is affected by the interchange of our mind, and it's by the Word of God. David testifies in Psalm 19:11, "Thy word is, I have treasured, or your version may say, hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God." God's own word is the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to help renew our minds, to turn us in the right direction, to ford off Satan and his temptation. And we only have our Savior to look at. Jesus over and over again when he was tempted in the wilderness and then teaches that we are to use his word to fight off, to resist temptation, resist the evil of this world. We are to use his word because his word is transforming. I said, you know, I'm going to be teaching from this book. Well, this book has nothing on this book. But this is a good book. It's just a tool. But the Bible is what is life-changing. As we read and understand what God has done, he's given us this revelation, and he uses it for transformation. Transformed in renewed minds, saturated by God through his word. I would challenge you to spend as much time as possible in the Word, in communicating, living out that righteous and holy life, sacrificing what you can and will to God instead of to the world. The mindset that we need as Christians is what Colossians 3 depicts, and that is we're to set our mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. And when we set our minds on things above, what happens is all of those necessary things that we think are important, all of those things that fill our time, yes, there are some necessities there. We make, have to make a living. We take care of our family. We have to eat. There's things that we have to do, and God understands that. But are we fashioning our life around that or around him? So he ends this with a, a will. Perfect wills must always be subject God's perfect, his perfect will. Presenting ourselves as a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice 
is our offering, our worship to him, but we also should present our will to him. And you would say, but God is sovereign. And I thought there was no free will. God controls everything. And God decides everything. And so I don't decide anything. Well, I don't know that Bill Joyner ate cornflakes this morning for breakfast, but if he did, God didn't decide for him whether he'd eat it without milk. He made that decision. There's decisions that we make in life, and God allows us to make those decisions. We are not puppets. Is God sovereign? Yes. Is God all-knowing? Yes. Answer is yes, 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 yes. But he wants us to submit our will to him and allow his will, as Paul says in this verse, listen, so that you may prove what is the will of God is that is good and acceptable and perfect. Transform your mind so that the will of God in you is working. This is our call And the Holy Spirit will give us the power to do that if we will lean into him. A transformed mind produces a transformed will. A transformed mind produces a transformed will by which we become eager not only to serve God, but we become eager about God's plans God's purpose for me. And so the more that you're in tune with the will of God, the more you have that desire to fulfill his purpose, his will for you. And you trust God that that will, his purpose for you, is perfect. It is perfect. The divine transformation of our minds must be constant must be continuous because we are living in this fallen body, this flesh that we have that houses this soul of ours. And our minds and our wills need to continuously be transformed by the Word and by the Spirit of God so that we live righteously, fitting, complete, and perfect in what God has called us to be and to do. This, yes, is an extreme makeover because it is nothing of what the world looks like. We are called to be different, to stand out. I want to close with a story. Some of you may have heard of Jerome Hines, I'd be curious, anyone heard of Jerome Hines? Okay. I thought maybe Dale might, but (laughs) Jerome Hines was an opera singer. And he sang at the Metropolitan Opera House. He grew up in California, and at a young age, he was told he had this magnificent voice. And he believed it. And he began to get the voice trained, and he began to do everything he could to use his voice. In fact, his 
whole desire as a young man, as a teenager and growing up, was that he would sing one day at the Metropolitan Opera House. He learned multiple languages so that he could sing opera in multiple formats and forms with his voice. And lo and behold, one day he got his shot. And it went well. They loved him. Called him back. He began to perform and was just a hit. Everyone loved Jerome Hines' voice. You can look him up if you want to and kind of see his life. Interestingly enough, Jerome Hines one day said, Out of all that I've done and all my desire and all my purpose, my whole purpose was to use this voice for my purpose, but it's been empty and hollow. I feel so empty inside. You know how God shows up sometimes in ways and in situations that you just never anticipated? One day he turned on the TV and there was a Billy Graham crusade. But Billy Graham wasn't preaching at the time he turned the TV on. George Beverly Shea was singing. And Jerome said, I heard that voice and I realized that voice is as good as my voice. That dude could be on the stage where I sing. But then he listened to the words of the song. You think a song can't change your life. The words will be on the screen. This is what Shay was singing. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather have his, I'd rather be his than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain and to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. The song is, I would rather have Jesus. Look it up, listen to it. Because he said that he didn't hear anything else of the crusade. He didn't even listen to, to Billy Graham preach. He said he began to think about these words. And in that moment, God wooed him to a relationship. And Jerome Hines gave his life to Christ. He had people that were now in his surrounding of who he was and what he did that said, oh, Jerome, you, you can't sing anymore on the opera. I mean, you can't, you can't live that life. You've been changed. And he said there was nothing in him that God was calling him away from being in the opera. He said what God was calling him to do was to live out his faith on that stage and with the people that he engaged with. We're not called to be pulled out of the world, but to live in the world, this life that God has given us. 
Jerome Hines was offered a part. It was a part that he had longed for. It was a 10-year run of an opera. It was going to afford him tens of thousands of dollars to be able to take this opera piece, and he signed the contract. He practiced. He spent months and months preparing. And when finally the first audition where everyone would gather and they would come on stage and they would practice, he came into the opera house. And he went on stage and the, the, the performers were choreographing and working out a dance scene as part of the opera. And he was appalled. He went to the director and he said, we can't do that. He said, that's not even part of the opera. That's, that's a lewd act that I'm just not going to be part of. And the director said, oh, yeah, we're going to do it. We've updated the opera to bring it into today's culture so that everyone that comes can see what is going on in our culture and that it's right and good. Jerome Hines said, no. I am not going to allow myself or my name or anything of my being to be a part of this. He went to the general manager of the opera house and told him his feelings. He said, Jerome, you're going to be blackballed. There's, you, you won't even be able to sing anymore. If you don't do this, you've signed a contract for 10 years besides all the money that you're going to forfeit. And Hines said, no. I don't care about that. I can't be a part of something that is so hideous against my Lord that I could be, my name be associated with it. So they let him out of the contract Interestingly enough, God had another plan because he continued to get jobs singing. He was not blackballed. God honored him even in that decision. But he was changed by a song that he listened to. And God chose that moment and that time for him to come to faith. And it's said that he impacted so many lives because of the renewing of his mind, the transforming of who he was. He was filled with the Spirit, the will of God, and he was not going to allow himself to be conformed, fashioned, molded into this world. So the question I would just have to end with is this. Are we living conformed lives for self or transformed lives for Christ? Are we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for just these two verses that remind us that we're part of the family of God and that you are urging us by your Holy Spirit to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, our sacrifice of worship to you, that 
we are to be transformed, not conformed. Father, I pray for the church. I pray for us. I pray for hope. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would continue to work and we would yield to you and lean into you and allow your spirit to continue to transform us into your likeness and into your desire and into your will that you have called us to, your purpose for our life until that day that I draw my last breath or that day that you call us home. I pray, Father, it would be so. We need to glorify you. Every breath, nothing less. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. In his name we pray.